Welcome to episode number three of the Structural Engineering Channel, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and also to help them succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, we will speak with Ronald Hamburger, a senior principal at Simpson, Gumperts, and Hager, and Evan Reese, a co-founder of the U.S. Resiliency Council. We will be talking to them about recent articles in the New York Times on the concept of building isolation, including the article, Buildings Can Be Designed to Withstand Earthquakes, Why Doesn't the U.S. Build More of Them? I am one of your hosts, Anthony Fasano. I am a licensed professional engineer who practiced as an engineer, but eventually decided I wanted to focus more on inspiring engineers rather than doing the engineering myself. So since then, I've written a book entitled Engineer Your Own Success and have traveled the world helping engineers build their core or soft skills. And I'm your other host, Matt Picardle. I'm also a licensed engineer, a structural engineer practicing in California with an undergrad degree from Cal Poly Pomona and a master's degree from UC San Diego. I also host a new YouTube channel, Structural Engineering Life, through which I'm focused on promoting the structural engineering profession to engineering students and young professionals that aren't too familiar with the industry perspective yet. Through this podcast, Matt and I plan to try to bring you information that can help you succeed in every episode. Now, before we get started with this episode, this is a free show and our sponsors help us keep it free. So we ask that you please support them. And now I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, CSI. Computers and Structures, Inc. is recognized globally as the pioneering leader in software tools for structural and earthquake engineering. Software from CSI is used by thousands of engineering firms in over 160 countries for the design of major projects. CSI's software is backed by more than four decades of research and development, making it the trusted choice of sophisticated design professionals everywhere. Listen up later in the show, where I will tell you more about their great software packages and how they can help you. All right, so before we give you a quick intro of the two guests we're going to have today, two well-known professionals in the structural engineering industry, this is an episode that we decided to do because some of these articles in the New York Times have been really floating around the structural engineering industry. The one on talking a little bit about why the U.S. doesn't have more buildings designed with base isolation. And then there was also another article this month that detailed the design of Apple's headquarters, which also has base isolation as part of it. This is a pretty interesting topic, isn't it, Matt? Yeah, it's very interesting just because it's like the articles mentioned. I mean, we're the leaders in technology, but we end up exporting a lot of that technology to other countries and it's not used too much in the U.S. yet. So it's kind of a weird look at that. Yeah, and Ron and Evan gave some really good insights to the reasons why we don't have as much base isolation here as in other countries. And believe it or not, it really has nothing to do with the technical side of it. Ron's going to talk about that a little bit more. Evan's going to talk a little bit more about some of the cultural reasons that we don't have base isolation here as much in other countries. And so what we're going to do now is we're just going to introduce both of them so you can get a little bit of their backgrounds and then we'll jump into the conversations with them. Matt, why don't you introduce Ron for the audience? Ron Hamburger has more than 30 years of experience in design, construction, education, research, evaluation, investigation, and repair of commercial, institutional, and industrial facilities. He is an internationally recognized expert in performance-based structural earthquake and blast engineering and has played a lead role in the development of national structural engineering standards and building code provisions. Following the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks in New York, 
Mr. Hamburger served as the lead investigator into the collapse of New York's Twin World Trade Center Towers on behalf of the Structural Engineering Institute of the American Society of Civil Engineers and the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Yeah, and Ron was great. We appreciate him giving us some time. And our second guest, Evan Reese. Evan is a structural engineer. He's the executive director of the U.S. Resiliency Council. He works with public agencies and private companies nationwide to promote resilience and protect buildings and infrastructure against natural and man-made risks. Evan focuses on developing comprehensive resilience management strategies that include mitigation, emergency management, and business continuity planning, and financial risk transfer. Evan graduated with his bachelor's and master's degrees in structural engineering from Stanford University in 1988. Following year, he was back down on the farm helping the university recover from the Loma Prieta earthquake and playing an integral part in its long-term seismic resilience program. Evan co-founded the U.S. Resiliency Council in 2011 as a way to educate building stakeholders and the public about the gap between growing sustainability movement and true resilient design. And Evan was great, very clear on this topic, and he's doing great things at the U.S. Resiliency Council, and we're happy to have him. So with that, let's jump into these interviews and get into this topic of base isolation. All right, now we'd like to welcome Ron Hamburger, who's the Senior Principal Director, Western Region Structural Engineering Head at Simpson, Gumperts, and Hager. Ron, welcome to the Structural Engineering Channel podcast. Thank you. So, Ron, thanks for giving us a few minutes here. Of course, base isolation, the concept of base isolation has been in the news a bit this month in the New York Times. One article referencing how there are so many more buildings with base isolation or a variant of base isolation in Japan, and another article featuring the Apple headquarters that, of course, has base isolation as part of the design. We wanted to ask you a little bit about here is, from a technical standpoint, is there any reasons behind this technically behind the the big difference between the number of buildings in the U.S. and other countries like Japan? Is it much more difficult? Is it much more expensive? We're trying to figure out some of the reasons behind this. So the reasons are largely economic as opposed to technical. It's not much more expensive to build a base isolated structure in the U.S. than it is in other countries. But U.S. developers don't recognize that incorporating that technology in their projects will provide them an adequate return to justify it. They'd rather put the extra money into finishes and architectural design that they view as providing an immediate return on their investment. In terms of design, as you're saying, it's not a lot of difference in terms of a design fee or anything like that. No, I mean, the building code, the U.S. building codes have had provisions in them for seismic isolation since the 1980s. They do require that the design be peer-reviewed by a third party that burdensome, nor does it cost that much. There is some incremental construction cost associated with base isolation, and that is the primary reason that it's not used for many structures. Base isolation and the concepts around it have been in the code or have been recognized they're in the code for a while. Yes. In fact, you know, the concept was first developed in New Zealand in the early 1980s. 
The first building in the United States that was base isolated was done in 1985 in San Bernardino, and there have been a handful of them done over the years since. The 1988 building code was the first edition that actually had requirements for this. A lot of these articles, if you're not familiar with base isolation, in a sense, almost make it sound new. I know, Matt, you've had maybe some experience with it, not yourself specifically, but you've heard about it a little bit in the past, but you haven't specifically worked on a project with it, have you? Yeah, I haven't specifically worked on a project with it, but definitely during my master's at UC San Diego, they've done a lot of testing on it. And for the most part, it performs really well in terms of limiting the damage to the building. I think that was even the concern when I went to grad school. It was, we got this technology, but you know it's used all around the world in all these other earthquake-prone countries, but the U.S. is still behind in, in terms of the, the technology. So, Ron, do you think it's just a matter of there's not a need for it in terms of the owners or the developers? They don't want really want to use it, and that's pretty much the reason why it's not that used in the U.S., and or will it ever be? Will it ever be is a difficult question. One of the things that is driving the sort of lack of interest in the U.S. for base isolation is that, except in very limited cases, the average firm or person that develops a new building doesn't expect to be a long-term owner of that building. Most buildings are developed by speculative builders who intend to sell the building immediately upon completion or may hold on to it for a period of five years. When you understand that severe earthquakes, even in a place like Los Angeles or San Francisco, occur on the order of once every 100 to 200 years or so, if you're only going to hold a building a few years, it's very unlikely that building will be affected by an earthquake. And so they don't see a return on their dollars that they're spending to avoid damage within their probable period of ownership. And the the resale market on the properties doesn't recognize the advantage of the technologies. And so there's just no financial incentive to do it. Now, that could change in the future if we have a really large earthquake, something like the great 1906 San Francisco earthquake that caused large-scale destruction to L.A. or San Francisco or Seattle. Then you could see that change. Then people would be more interested in seismic protection and be willing to invest more in it. That makes a lot of sense then why a company like an Apple, of course, has a lot of money. They're building a long-term facility. They're protecting products, services, people that are building their company and building their future would invest in something like base isolation as opposed to a, a residential developer who's trying to keep costs down, keep profit margins high and sell units by, as Ron said earlier, showing finishes and fancy things in their apartments and views and things of that nature, which... I don't know. That explains that to me anyway. Someone like Apple also has an interest in protecting their public image. So knowing that they're building in an area that has high risk relative to other regions of the U.S. of having a severe earthquake, they wouldn't want to have just built a magnificent structure like they're doing, have an earthquake occur shortly after it opens and do major damage to it. It would be a a black eye to them, they feel, in the public eye. That also was a motivation for them. Before we let you go, one last question just to ask you. You do a lot of work, of course, in the industry and you're involved with different associations. Just from seeing everything you're seeing right now, what is something about the structural engineering industry right now that's exciting to you? 
I think the most exciting thing is the proliferation of a design technology that we call performance-based design. Most buildings are designed to comply with building code requirements, and those building code requirements are intended to deliver a certain minimum acceptable level of performance, usually involving protection of life safety, but not particularly focused at preventing capital losses or business interruption or loss of use in future extreme events. So over the past 10 to 15 years, there has been a proliferation of design guidelines and design tools made available that allow engineers to design for earthquakes, also hurricanes and tornadoes and other extreme hazards, and basically select the amount of damage that they're willing to tolerate under these events. I think this gives structural engineers a real tool that can help owners who are interested in protecting their investment to look at alternative ways. Seismic isolation is certainly a good way, but there are other ways as well. And this gives us the tools that we need to be able to help those owners who are interested in higher performing structures to get them. So it gives structural engineers flexibility in a sense. Yes. Once again, Ron Hamburger from SGH. Ron, thank you so much for spending some time with us here on the Structural Engineering Channel podcast. Sure. Happy to do it. All right. Now I'd like to welcome Evan Reese, the Executive Director of the U.S. Resiliency Council to the Structural Engineering Channel podcast. Evan, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Evan, before we dive in on this topic of base isolation that's been in the New York Times this month several times, tell us a little bit about the U.S. Resiliency Council and what the mission of the council is. So the U.S. Resiliency Council was founded a little bit out of frustration with the architectural community focusing on sustainability as being primarily related to green design, that is, our buildings having a low impact on the environment. As structural engineers, we understand that true sustainability is also about the environment having a low impact on our buildings. And that's really what resiliency is, whether it be an earthquake or a hurricane or a flood, the better our buildings can perform when hit by these kinds of natural disasters, the more sustainable they really will be over the long term. So the U.S. Resiliency Council was founded as a way to use engineering technology that has been developed by organizations like the American Society for Civil Engineers and FEMA and others to quantify the performance of buildings in earthquakes and other natural disasters so that owners and tenants and lenders and insurers and other building stakeholders can really start to make decisions about the design and construction of their buildings so that they'll be preserved during and after events, the assets, preserving the business and the functions that go on in those buildings. Wow, that's interesting. And I'm sure that, Evan, that we can probably have you back in the future for a whole episode around resiliency, which would be probably really interesting to our listeners. But for now, let's jump into this topic of base isolation. We talked about a little bit earlier in the episode, kind of setting it up and that, you know, you're trying to separate the building from the ground in a sense to soften, I guess, the blow one way or another is a good way to say it in terms of if the ground shakes, if there is an earthquake. There's been a couple of articles in the New York Times this month on it. It's obviously a very hot topic right now. We've talked a little bit earlier about the technical aspects of this. In the article that was focused on Apple's earthquake-ready headquarters was kind of the title of it. 
they did quote you in that article and which is what we wanted to talk to you about. And one of the things that the article talks about is, well, there's a couple things. First of all, it talks about how there's so many more, roughly 9,000 buildings in Japan that use a variant of base isolation. And in the US, this Apple building is one of only around 175 buildings, which is a really big difference. But before we get into that, what you had mentioned in the article, which was interesting, was that you said that in Silicon Valley, the area has thousands of cheaply built structures known as tilt-ups that are known to be vulnerable to collapse in an earthquake. Both workers and executives are often unaware that their buildings are dangerous. And coupled with that, also some things in the article talk about how even that if buildings are to code doesn't mean based on today's standards that they may be safe. So first of all, talk about that quote a little bit in terms of how some of these existing buildings just aren't safe. As with anything, we learn from experience. And every time there's an earthquake, wherever it is in the world, uh, structural engineers learn more about how buildings perform. Earthquakes don't happen all the time, and so it's not like testing a widget or a car or something where you can test hundreds or thousands of these to understand you know, how a car or a microwave performs. We have to wait for an earthquake to happen to really get a full understanding of how buildings perform. And so engineers from the time that engineering started up until today learn from disasters that happen and certainly when it comes to earthquakes we've learned from past disasters what types of buildings what types of materials what types of design performs better or worse in earthquakes and our building codes then reflect that building codes in the 1960s for concrete buildings like these sort of tilt-up construction that's done in large parts of the Silicon Valley, used connections and detailing that didn't have a lot of ductility in them. So when an earthquake happens and the ground shakes for 30 seconds or a minute, those brittle type of connections tend to fail. And tilt-up structures are highly susceptible to that because you have concrete walls and a wood roof, so you have dissimilar materials that are trying to be connected together. And it wasn't until earthquakes in the 70s, 80s, and 90s that we started to understand that behavior better and modify our building codes so that those types of buildings would be safe after an earthquake. So there are, yes, literally thousands of these older style buildings when Silicon Valley was growing that were constructed in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that don't have some of these fundamental components to them that we now know are sort of essential to making buildings safe. And that makes sense. I mean, listen, time passes, things change. And quite frankly, there may be some things that could be done that might be more effective than what the code says, since the code in some senses may be outdated. And that's, again, gets maybe gets into the discussion of performance-based design and some of the other things that are going on in the industry. However, let's get back to this discrepancy in terms of the number of buildings, the 9,000 buildings in Japan versus the 175 here that have some form of variant of base isolation. What are the reasons for that in your eyes or that you've seen that there's such a big difference? And maybe it's justified, but we're just curious. One just really good example, a very visual example, is if you go on the internet today, and I've done this, and I search on luxury apartment in San Francisco. Now, go ahead and try this. And you will get many websites that are offering multi-million dollar condominiums in San Francisco. And the pictures, the photographs that they include are always the same. You will have this beautiful view from the rooftop. There'll be a fireplace. You'll be looking out over the lights of the city, see the Golden Gate Bridge. That's what sells a multi-million dollar 
condominium in San Francisco. A friend of mine who's a structural engineer was in Tokyo recently, and he was on the subway. And he took a picture of an ad on the subway for a multi-million dollar luxury condominium in Tokyo. But the image wasn't of the roof. It was of the basement and a super large base isolator. This ugly rubber base isolator was what sold a multi-million dollar apartment in Tokyo. It was, it's a perfect sort of analogy to what that difference is between Japanese and the Americans. And the reason behind a base isolated building selling an apartment complex in Tokyo, you can see advertisements on TV for base isolated buildings. You would never see that in the United States. I think the reason is the proximity that the Japanese have to damaging events. Geographically, it's a relatively small country. Geographically, everybody in the country, to some degree or another, is subject to a pretty significant earthquake risk. And it's likely that in their lifetimes, they've either experienced or know somebody personally who's experienced one of the very damaging earthquakes, whether it's the 1995 Kobe earthquake, more recent Tohoku earthquake in 2011. It's presence of mind. It's those kinds of events happening on a regular basis in the same way, really, that hurricanes happen on the East Coast. Everybody that lives in Miami understands that a hurricane can happen to them at any time. In California, on the West Coast generally, but also in places like South Carolina where there's an earthquake risk and Central Missouri where there's an earthquake risk, there hasn't been, there isn't that presence of mind. We don't see these things happening every day, or we don't see them happening to people that we know or ourselves personally. And like anything, if there's a low probability, a perceived low probability of something happening, you're going to be spending your investment and your money on things that are you have to focus on today. And so that, I believe, is really a key reason why we don't see anywhere near the same number of base isolated buildings in the U.S. as we do in Japan or in places like Turkey or Chile, where those two countries as well have a large proportion of base isolated buildings because they also have earthquakes on a regular basis that affect millions of people. So essentially, base isolation doesn't sell units. Not yet, right. But our goal, the goal of the U.S. Resiliency Council, is to inform the public and those that buy buildings or lease buildings or insure buildings or lend on them, these kind of events do happen. And when they happen, it's important to protect the asset that you've invested in or the, the space that you're running your business out of or the home that you're living in, as well as it is obviously to protect your own safety. It's really a matter of growing awareness, growing education, like these articles in the New York Times that talk about what a base isolated building is, how it performs. The Apple headquarters is a sort of a signature building, obviously, but you can make buildings, you know, more modest buildings perform better as well. It doesn't only have to be for these iconic landmark buildings that you can improve performance. That's important part of it too, in terms of economic viability and the fact that the Apple headquarters uses base isolation and that the New York Times is covering it is only hopefully going to be helpful in terms of spreading the word and making non-engineering professionals aware of that, aware that this exists. As an engineer myself like you, what stands out most about what you said about when you gave the analogy of the two ads of the houses or the condo units 
is that just tells me that a lot more people in Japan understand this engineering concept, which to me as an engineer is nice to know. Because I think a lot of times in the US, we feel that people don't really understand what engineers do. The engineering profession as a whole isn't as elevated as it is in other countries like in Europe, where they might call you engineeries or engineer fasano. That doesn't happen here. So it's interesting to me and almost exciting in a way that everyday people that are going to buy a unit are looking at the engineering aspects of that building. And maybe a lot of what you just said, they're closer to this maybe than we are in a lot of ways, which is why that has happened. So that's interesting stuff, Evan. We appreciate you coming on and sharing those thoughts. Now, before I let you go, one other thing I want to ask you is because you're so close to the industry and you're in it all the time, what is something for our listeners out there right now that you find to be exciting about the structural engineering industry? What's exciting right now to you? That's a great question. We are at a crucial inflection point, I believe, within the design, the engineering and architectural community. And that is focused around this concept of resilience. We see natural disasters happening everywhere in the world. We continue to build in cities that are subject to natural disasters, whether it be a place like Houston or San Francisco. We continue to pour resources into areas that are at high risk. And every time we see a disaster worldwide, we understand more what resilience means and why it's so important. A few months ago, I spoke to a small university, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, to their engineering, their architectural engineering group, and spoke about this opportunity for engineers to be part of, not just part of, but to lead in this resilience movement. What I saw that was so encouraging to me was that these young students, you know, all in their teens and and 20s, saw this as an opportunity to do something sort of larger than themselves. A lot of folks, when they go into structural engineering, you and I both, you know, we start out doing calculations, sitting at our desks, you know, you don't necessarily see how what you're doing could possibly impact something larger. If you're lucky, your principal takes you along and you can see the, the whole building being built. But now we have this opportunity to see what resilience means, what the structural engineering profession means, not just for a building, but for the entire community that that building serves. And I think that is very exciting. I think it's really important that the engineering profession as a whole, whether it's ASCE or the structural engineering societies, that we take advantage of this opportunity and really promote the value that engineers provide. One of my old professors, a guy named Helmut Krawwinkler, really well known in the seismic engineering business, one of the, the sort of the paragons, he has this quote that says, engineering is a noble profession. And we all know it's true, you know, because we know the work that we do. But to see young people get engaged about that profession having such a large impact on our communities and our world is really exciting for me to see. Evan Reese, Executive Director of the U.S. Resiliency Council, thank you for spending a few minutes with us here on the Structural Engineering Channel. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed the episode today is a very interesting topic and it's good to see it get some national attention because it's obvious that for the reasons that Ron and Evan spoke about, it's not as popular of a topic here as it is 
in other areas of the world. And before we wrap this episode up, I would like to recognize our sponsor once again for this episode, CSI. CSI produces five primary software packages, SAP 2000, CSI Bridge, eTabs, Safe, and Perform 3D. Each of these programs offers unique capabilities and tools that are tailored to different types of structures and problems, allowing users to find just the right solution for their work. SAP 2000 is intended for use on civil structures such as dams, communication towers, stadiums, industrial plants, and buildings. CSI Bridge offers powerful parametric design of concrete and steel bridges. ETABS has been developed specifically for multi-story commercial and residential building structures, such as office towers, apartments, and hospitals. The SAFE system provides an efficient and powerful program for the analysis and design of concrete slabs and foundations, with or without post-tensioning. Perform 3D is a highly focused nonlinear tool offering powerful performance-based design capabilities. With CSI products, you can be confident that you have the finest structural engineering software available backed by a company with an unmatched record of innovation and an unrivaled commitment to meet the ever-evolving needs of the profession. You can learn more about them at www.csiamerica.com. All right, Matt, we had a couple of great experts on today on a very interesting topic, and I thought it was interesting in terms of understanding some of the cultural differences, the fact that base isolation sells units in Japan. I still kind of can't get over that. I think that's interesting. I can't imagine that many people here in the U.S. understanding base isolation to that degree and kind of wanting it. I think what kind of like the main points is, you know, there's not that need for that type of earthquake design in the U.S., just because I don't think we've been hit by one in a lot of years and people just aren't aware of it. And I think that's something the structural engineering community can do is to educate the public, hey, we are going to have earthquakes and your buildings aren't protected as you think. And I think it might just be a matter of one way we could do it is either wait for the earthquake to hit or you know just go out there, be more active and promote the structural engineering industry and the technology that, that we use to the public. Yeah, for sure. I mean, being in business for a while, you learn that you can build a business and sell products and services when people have a problem and you can solve that problem. And I don't think enough people in the US think that we have a problem, an earthquake problem. So they're not looking to solve that problem. I mean, that's just, that's kind of just the bottom line. And it was good to hear these guys talk about it because, you know, we were looking for technical reasons or Ron mentioned some economical reasons, but really is a cultural thing. And it really is the fact that maybe we haven't experienced it as much as, as Japan, for example. So it was good to dig into it a little bit. And also interesting to hear Ron talk about the Apple project a little bit as well. All right. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We'd love your feedback, comments, or questions. You can go to structuralengineeringchannel.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. And also, please subscribe to us on iTunes. Just go to iTunes and type in Structural Engineering Channel. This way, you'll make sure that you get all of our episodes as they come out. Until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors.